ahead and uh, begin with a word of prayer this morning. Thank you so much for coming to Sunday School. Uh, it's awesome to just hear all the notebooks clicking open and closed and putting your new sheets in for this week uh, as we start a new book, as you can see on your screen there. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are just grateful for the opportunity to take some time uh, on a Sunday morning and open your word and uh, talk about it with one another. This really is um, part of uh, encouraging one another in the Lord. And as we hear each other's answers to these questions, I pray that our faith would be strengthened, that we would grow uh, in our love for your word, and that we would leave today more like Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. We've spent the last, I guess, four months, January, February, March, and April, uh, in the Gospels with like a heavy dosage on Jesus and his ministry, looking at all of his miracles, all of his teachings. And when we finished the last chapter of John, that kind of came to an end. And maybe you're sitting here wondering like, okay, what's next? Maybe it seems a little anticlimactic even now that Jesus is kind of off the page, if you will. Like, where's this going? Well, I want you to imagine with me uh, as we begin the study of Acts this morning that you are a disciple immediately after Jesus's ascension into heaven. Maybe more specifically, let's say that you are the apostle Peter. And Jesus has instructed you to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And you're faithfully doing that, even though the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. And you have some time to think. And you're just sitting there thinking about the events of the last three years. Just three years ago, you were a fisherman. Your day-to-day -day activities looked like getting in the boat going on to the Sea of Galilee, tossing the nets in the water, hopefully coming back with some fish that you can sell, mend your nets, do it all over again the next day. That was your life. Until one day, a rabbi approaches you, and there's this huge crowd that's pressing in on him, and he asks if he can uh, kind of use your boat as a standing platform just to get away from the crowds a little bit. Hey, can I uh, use your boat and just kind of float in the water? Uh, and, and speak to all of these crowds that are pressing in on me. And you say, sure, no big deal. He teaches and preaches his lesson. And when he's done, he looks at you. And he says, how about you go back out in the water and give fishing another go? Toss your nets over. And you're thinking to yourself, you even tell him, uh, I spent all night fishing. Didn't catch a thing. If the fish aren't there, they're not there, right? And you, you do it anyway. And what happens? You catch more fish than you've ever caught in your lifetime in one go. And, and immediately, it is obvious to you, this is no ordinary man. In fact, you would be the first to admit that this isn't a prophet, this isn't John the Baptist reincarnate. Who is in front of you is the Christ, the promised one of the Old Testament. And he calls you to be his follower. And those next three years of your life are something you'll never forget. Some of the things that you saw Jesus do are beyond even your belief. 
and, and healing people and causing the lame to walk, the blind to see, raising people from the dead even. You saw Jesus walk on water. You even stepped out yourself and walked on water. You were part of Jesus' inner circle. You were there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was revealed in all of his glory. You saw Moses. You saw Elijah. You heard the voice of God. These last three years have been unlike anything you could ever imagine. So what's next? Let me ask you this. If someone were to try and silence you or say, eh, Jesus isn't who he says he is. How easily do you think you're going to be silenced? Probably not very easily, huh? You've seen too much. You've experienced Jesus up close and personal. You know who he is. And Jesus has commissioned you to take his name to the ends of the world. And here you are waiting for the Holy Spirit that is going to come and equip you to do these things. All, all, all of this is background to the book of Acts, because this is where the apostles find themselves in chapter 1. Let's turn there together, if you're not already there in Acts chapter 1. I mentioned this at the beginning of the intro to this, but maybe you're wondering... After the events of the Gospels, anything that follows could be a little anticlimactic or uncertain. This is a precarious time for the church. Their leader, Jesus, is back into heaven, and it's just these 11 apostles who are left. What's next? What, what becomes of the disciples? Uh, how does the church go from a handful of people in the first century here to the millions and millions of followers that we have today? Well, the book of Acts kind of serves as a bridge to answer those questions. It is a bridge from the uh, narrative of the Gospels to the rich doctrine of the epistles. And if you like missionary bi biographies, you're going to like the book of Acts. Because it is just people, chapter after chapter after chapter, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. I personally did not know a whole lot about Acts before this study, it wasn't a book that was like way up there on my radar of books I liked to read, but as I've looked at it more and more, it is awesome. There is some really cool stuff that happens in this book, and I hope that as we read it this month, that your eyes are just kind of enlightened to some of the uh, boldness and working of the Holy Spirit and the glory of Jesus as he is proclaimed to the nation. So we'll begin this morning with just answering the first question on our notebook there. This is a pretty easy one, but who is the book of Acts addressed to? Theophilus. Yes, and second question, what gospel was also addressed to this person? Luke. Therefore, we could rightly conclude that who also wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Yeah, and interestingly enough, we often think of the Apostle Paul as having written the most of the New Testament. Certainly, he wrote the most books, I think 13 of them. But actually, because Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, that has even more content collectively than all of the Apostle Paul's writings, and so he wrote most of the New Testament, not Paul, contrary to popular belief. Um, I also, maybe just a personal 
uh, preference here. I wish whoever arranged the scriptures into the order that it's in today would have put maybe Luke as the fourth gospel, not John, because they kind of roll right into each other. Uh, Luke ends and Acts picks up right where Luke drops off. Um, let's see, let's, before we answer that, that third question, let's get a little bit more background into uh, the book of Acts, just as we read through maybe the first, I don't know, 12 verses or so. I'll read the first five, and then we'll stop and maybe make some comments. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We mentioned that Luke also wrote this book. Uh, and addressed it to Theophilus. Here's just Luke's introduction to Theophilus for a refresher. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It was Luke's mission in writing his gospel to help Theophilus know everything about Jesus that he would write an orderly account so that, hey, Theophilus, everything you've heard, let me just put it on paper for you and conform for you. This is true. But in writing Acts, Luke is demonstrating that even though Jesus has ascended back into heaven, the story isn't over. There's still more to be told, Theophilus, so here's Acts for you. Let me tell you what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven. And we're told in these first five verses that Jesus gives this instruction to wait for the Holy Spirit. If you remember back in John chapter 16, Jesus actually said that it is to your advantage that I leave. Because in leaving, I'm going to give you guys the Holy Spirit. That's hard for us to comprehend, to be honest. How is Jesus leaving actually better for us? Well, I think we'll see throughout the book of Acts, as you can tell from one of your key words there, that the Holy Spirit is a huge part of this book. Uh, in fact, I'll do my best to draw it out even as we study it, but over and over and over again, the Holy Spirit is seen present and active in this book, doing things that are just unbelievable. And, and it starts to make sense to us why it is actually better that Jesus left and left the Holy Spirit with us. I think sometimes his ministry is a little um, obscure to us. We, we know what Jesus does, we know what God the Father does, but the Holy Spirit, not so sure sometimes. I, I, I hope that reading Acts will clarify that for us, that as we just like see his ministries over and over and over again, we'll be like, whoa, <laughs> this is an awesome member of the Godhead and the role that he serves in advancing the gospel. Uh, let's keep reading in verse 6 down through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I find those last couple of verses just really kind of humorous even as the the apostles are like kind of sitting there looking up into heaven still and the angels have to remind them like, what are you guys still doing here? Like Jesus gave you some instructions. He said he'd be back and it'll be in the same way that he left to these clouds. So get to work, (laughs) go wait for the Holy Spirit. And uh, we encountered verse eight and our third question here that, well, I won't spoil it. According to verse eight and the title of this book, what do you anticipate the rest of Acts to be about? Barb. Yeah, totally. And verse eight kind of gives us this really unique progression, if you will, kind of begins in Jerusalem and then all Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. It was pointed out to me that this uh, geographical sequence actually serves to be a sort of outline for how the book of Acts progresses. I think a map is especially helpful here. I realize that might not be entirely clear to you, especially those words in the bottom left-hand corner there, but as the book of Acts progresses uh, sequentially through its chapters, so too does the gospel seem to advance. So that red box is illustrating that chapters one to five are really concentrated right there in Jerusalem. And then six to nine kind of broaden their focus a little bit and we see the gospel being spread to Samaria and Judea. And then 10 to 28, I think, uh, reaches all the way into Rome. I disagree a little bit with these chapter divisions, so if you're writing this down, maybe leave that a little bit open-ended, but I hope that this illustrates for you that as the book of Acts progresses, so too do we see the scope of the gospel progress. Does that make sense? That this is what's taking place in the book of Acts. Acts kind of leaves us with a problem in chapter one, there's a vacancy left behind by Judas. We're told in verses uh, 12 and following that after Judas betrayed Jesus, he actually took his own life. And there is a vacancy in one of the disciples or apostles, we would call them. Uh, This is significant because Jesus promises that the disciples would sit on 12 thrones in the new world. Uh, Revelation talks about how the foundation of the new city actually has the names of the 12 apostles on them. So now that we only have 11, there's certainly a gap that needs to be filled here. And in verse 16, what does Peter say was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures? When? Yeah, totally. The betrayal of Judas. Uh, You know that I love these connections between Old and New Testament, and we've encountered several of them already in our study through the Gospels. Uh, But we just cannot be surprised anymore when the scripture reveals yet another thing that is anticipated in the Old Testament. Like we've seen really, really specific stuff uh, about like Jesus' birthplace, being born of a virgin. Here the the New Testament tells us, yeah, it also anticipated Judas' betrayal. Back in Luke, we're told that Satan actually uh, possesses Judas, but this did not catch God off guard, did it? No, not at all. What prophecy, or excuse me, what book is this prophecy found in according to verse 20? Psalms, yeah. 
The Psalms talk about this. In these verses, we have another reference to the Holy Spirit. I realize this wasn't a question, but in verse 16, what role does the Holy Spirit have? If you could just read that and tell me. Yeah, Brenda. Ah, interesting. How, how else might, might we word that? The Holy Spirit spoke through David. The Holy Spirit is responsible for what? Timothy says, inspiring the scriptures. Yeah, so one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to speak through people the very words of God. You know, there are a lot of people who say that the scriptures are a man-made invention. Ah, this is just the work of some guys who wrote some stuff down. People say these things to try and illustrate or justify that the Bible isn't authoritative, that it really has no bearing on our life. But the evidence that the Holy Spirit wrote this book is right here in this passage. Here David is, a thousand years prior to this event, talking about how someone is going to betray Jesus. If you or I wrote something that happened a month in advance, that'd be impressive enough. Here David is, a thousand years prior, writing about these events. And, and, and if this just happened once or twice in the scriptures, I'm sure people would find ways to give other explanations for this. But this happens over and over and over again. And it should be evident to us, the Holy Spirit is behind the writing of the scriptures. I love how it says that the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. And so as they are selecting someone to replace Judas, what, what requirements had to be met in order to be eligible to be the next apostle, according to verses 21 and 22 there? There were a couple of requirements. What were they? Claire? Okay. Yes, they had to be there. Uh, I think it says, like, from the baptism of John and have observed the resurrected Jesus. And there were two guys who met the bill, Joseph and Matthias, and they pray, they cast lots, and Matthias is chosen. Now, the apostles had a significant function in the early church. They were uniquely chosen by Jesus to help the early church get on its feet. They were equipped with the ability to do these signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, many of them actually spoke authoritatively on Jesus's behalf. In fact, what we have recorded for us in the epistles is just that. It's Jesus speaking through them and, and preserving God's word. And, and you may wonder why I've drawn our attention to these qualifications in particular. And that is because there are people today who would claim to be apostles. There is a movement right now called the New Apostolic Reformation. I read online this week that there are millions of adherents to this thing. And their leaders claim to be apostles. They claim to be able to do these sign gifts, these miracles, and these wonders. They claim to speak authoritatively uh, on behalf of Jesus as if they've received divine revelation themselves. And yet, just using these two verses as a bit of a guide, how would you evaluate this movement? Are there still apostles today? No. Why not? Yeah, none of them are 2,023 years old, right? <laughs> and so we would just evaluate anyone who claims to be an apostle in this sense of the word and say, no, 
Not, not according to the scriptures, at least. Moving on to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 begins with the day of Pentecost. I trust you know this well. This is the day that Jesus had promised 120 of the disciples are gathered into this room together, and all of a sudden there's a sound of rushing wind, a flame of fire comes to rest over people's heads, and the Holy Spirit indwells all of these people, empowering them to do what? What is another role of the Holy Spirit? What do these people do after they're empowered? Yeah, speak in different languages. There are people from all over who have gathered in Jerusalem that have their own uh, native tongue, and the Holy Spirit equips them to speak about the mighty works of God in their native languages. Peter says that this is a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel has spoken. Peter also mentions a couple more psalms. We're seeing Peter in a role unlike we've seen him before. I mean, he is quoting the Old Testament like crazy. In Acts chapter 1, he's the one who's responsible for kind of leading the charge and picking a new apostle. Here in Acts chapter 2, he's the one who stands up and begins preaching the word of God. And in part of his sermon, he, he reveals God the Father's activity in the plan of redemption. How was how it described for us in verses 23 and 24? What, what is God's role in this plan of redemption? Craig. Ah, interesting. Yeah, God the Father actually planned this, and there's a second thing that God the Father also did. Yeah, he raised Jesus from the dead. How does that strike you that the cross was really the plan of God? Sometimes we think that maybe the Roman soldiers were responsible for the death of Jesus. Maybe we think that the Jewish people were responsible for the death of Jesus, uh, that our sins were what put Jesus on the cross. Certainly those things are true, but it cannot be to the exclusion of the fact that it was also God's plan to put Jesus on the cross. What does that teach us about God then? He's in control, totally. From the outset, this was always God's plan. I'm going to redeem these people back to myself. Thank you. I also think that we can marvel at God's love here in taking the initiative and redeeming people to himself. Yeah, totally. I really appreciate Peter's boldness in this chapter. It's something that we'll encounter uh, in following questions, but Peter does not pull any punches. Look again at verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here Jesus, here Peter is looking at the very men who, who condemned Jesus, not 50 days prior, and he says, you guys killed Jesus. Then he offers this um, similar statement in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This leads us to our second question. In verses 37 to 41, how did Peter's proclamation of the gospel impact those in attendance? How did people respond when they hear these bold words of Peter? They were cut to the heart. Yeah, I love that sentence there. It reminds me of what Hebrews 4 says about God's word, how it's quick 
and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, we're reminded that the bold preaching of Scripture has life. When people are firm in what they believe and bold in proclaiming Jesus, people are convicted of sins. They're cut to the heart here, and they ask this question, what shall we do? If this is the case, what do we do here? How does Peter answer that question? Yeah, he tells them, repent and be baptized. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, too late. You kill Jesus. He doesn't say, Jesus is your enemy now. He won't forgive you. The very people who not 50 days prior were shouting, crucify him, Peter says, come to him. Repent and be baptized and find eternal life. Your sins can be forgiven. Who does Peter say that the gospel is for? Yeah, everybody. For you, your children, all who are far off, this is who the gospel is for. And I do want to address one final thing before we move into chapter 3. In verse 38, maybe you read that at first and were a little confused at what exactly is going on here. We read, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what might strike you as a little bit odd from that verse particularly? Yes. Did you guys all hear copy? This verse seems to be illustrating, or insinuating at least, that part of salvation is repenting and baptized. And after you do these things, you will be saved. Now, how does that maybe make you a little uncomfortable? Could someone articulate what might be a little... Yeah, Bonnie. Uh, Totally, right? We're told everywhere else in Scripture that salvation is by faith alone. And here, verse 38 seems to be illustrating that maybe baptism is a part of this. Well, there is a lot actually written about this verse. If you're interested, you can go look at it. And there are just some very like technical <laughs> explanations given as for why baptism isn't the case. I wanted you to, isn't necessary for salvation. I just wanted you to look over at verse 19 of chapter 3 to see Peter kind of summarize the gospel again. In 3.19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, what is missing from his explanation of the gospel here? Baptism. Yeah, and, and as one scholar pointed out uh, to me, there are a hundred references that are crystal clear. Salvation is only through faith. If we were to add baptism to it, like Bonnie said, that would be a work. And so we need to interpret confusing passages, like we read here in chapter 2, through what is explicitly clear in the scriptures. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. A hundred other times the Bible says it is faith alone in Christ alone. And so the burden is on us then to try and figure out what Peter means here by adding baptism into it. Again, there are a lot of very technical explanations. Uh, Maybe the clearest just sees baptism as an evidence of salvation. So repent and you will receive the Holy Spirit and your sins will be forgiven. And the baptism component of this verse is evidence that new life has taken place in your heart. Again, that is the very, very watered down version of how people explain this. Um, And maybe I can direct you to some more resources if you're interested. 
afterwards. But we're told at the end of chapter 2 uh, that this is how the early church is kind of functioning with each other. Look at verse 46. Uh, maybe back up just a little bit to verse 44. The early church is starting. There's 3,000 souls added on this day. And all who believed, verse 44 says, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think this is just an awesome description of what the church should be like having each other into our homes, worshiping together, having all things in common. Uh, that, that is in reference to their belongings just kind of being shared. But these people, maybe even more generally than that, have Christ in common. And that's enough. And that's the basis for their fellowship and their unity. We come to Acts chapter 3 now. And it begins with a story of this lame man who is sitting on the steps in the entrance to the temple. And he's been there every day asking for alms, and Peter and John encounter him, and this guy thinks he's about to get uh, a little bit of money, and instead, Peter utters those famous words, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I will give to you, and he says, rise, and you can walk, and this guy starts walking and even jumping, I think. Can you imagine the spectacle that this must have been? This guy was probably just almost a part of the temple for how long he had been there. People just come to associate this guy with the temple, and here he is, running around, leaping. Unbelievable. I'm sure people were blown away by this. And this really is the catalyst for the events of chapters three and four, maybe even into chapter five. Uh, It's a huge deal. And so all of these people are clamoring around, trying to figure out, like, what has happened here? And Peter doesn't need any more of an excuse to start preaching the gospel. I mean, if there's a crowd, he's preaching. In verses 13 to 15, how does Peter describe the various ways that the crowd had treated Jesus. He's pretty bold again here. Yeah, you crucified him? Maybe give me the exact language of the text. What what does Peter say? You killed the author of life. You denied the holy and righteous one. You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Just again and again and again, coming after these people. Not like you as in a general sense, like, yeah, some people did this. No, you guys did this. This is how you treated Jesus. And what are the titles that Peter uses for Jesus in these verses? I think they're pretty fascinating. Okay, God's servant. The holy and righteous one. And then there's one other, Julia. The author of life. Yeah, and notice, I think these present a rich Christology as they are, but notice how they stand in contrast to what Peter is illustrating here. So he first reminds people of bringing Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate's conclusion was, I find no fault in this man. Pilate somehow stumbled across the truth, that Jesus was innocent. And Peter looks at these people and he says, and you killed the holy and righteous one. You condemned the innocent. And then he elaborates a little bit further, and he reminds them that given the opportunity to set Jesus free, they chose a murderer instead. They said, set Barabbas free. And Jesus says, you chose the murderer and killed the author of life. How bold is Peter here? Awesome. I love it. So contrast Peter's boldness in this chapter 
with his actions in Luke 22, how would you describe the difference in Peter's demeanor in these two passages? What's going on here? Titus. Yeah, you worded it pretty well. Not two months prior, Peter is like following Jesus at a distance. A couple of times, actually three times, people say, hey, weren't you one of his followers? And he vehemently denies it to the point on the third instance, he actually calls a curse down upon himself. I do not know this man. And yet as Titus said for us, here he is 50 days later. He doesn't care who he is. He gives no thought to his own life. He is convinced that Jesus is the way. And he's going to talk about it. And we can't help but wonder if maybe the Holy Spirit coming on all these people was a part of this and giving Peter this boldness. <laughs> maybe Jesus' interaction with Peter after he was resurrected and told him, do you love me three times? Feed my sheep. You know, there's something obviously has happened in Peter's life. Thank you for articulating that for us, Titus. I just love uh, Peter's just total 180 in demeanor between the Gospels and Acts. He is so bold here. Um, second part of Acts chapter 3, according to verse 19, what is available to those who were responsible for killing Jesus? Their sins will be blotted out. Yeah, and what does this teach us about God's love? If he would extend forgiveness even to the very people who had murdered his son. It's unconditional. Yeah. In a periphery sense, our sins also put Jesus on the cross. And, and God's love is so great that our sins can be blotted out too if we will just come to his son in faith and in repentance. Yeah, pretty awesome. Uh, so we come to chapter four. And like I mentioned prior to this, Peter's healing of that lame man has created quite a stir in the town. He's still preaching. He mentions the resurrection of the dead, which, which group hates the resurrection in the New Testament? Anyone remember? The Sadducees, yeah. So the Sadducees find out that, Jesus, that Peter's talking about the resurrection of the dead, and they take Peter, and uh, there might have been another guy present. Anyway, they haul him off uh, to prison. And the next day, uh, Peter and John, yep, are hauled out before the high priest's whole family. Where did we last see these guys Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. Annas is his father-in-law, Julia. Where did we see them last? Yeah, when Jesus was standing before them. It was at Caiaphas's house that Jesus had his trial. It, it was Caiaphas who tore his robes and uttered, this man has committed blasphemy. You know, we're going to put him to death. It was Caiaphas who had actually prophesied unknowingly that it is better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Yeah, these people, are they friends or enemies of Jesus? Definitely enemies. And what does Peter declare about Jesus in verse 12? To these men. Yeah, Julia. He's the only way. 
Yeah, can you imagine saying that to the high priest and his family? The religious ruler of the day? The guy you killed is the only way of salvation? Unbelievable. Peter's boldness is just really astonishing here. So as Peter and John are speaking, um, they're kind of threatened, we might say intimidated as they continue to preach. They're like kind of pulled aside and they're told, you know what, we really can't do deny that a lame man was healed, but you guys need to stop talking about Jesus. This message has to be silent. how, How do Peter and John respond to those threats in verses 19 and 20? Uh, yeah, Diane said we must obey God rather than men. Copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They say, you cannot silence us. We know what we've seen and heard. You guys cannot suppress the truth. And I had kind of a secondary question and Uh, more reflective slash application. What have you seen and heard in your own life that gives testimony to the power and authority of Jesus? Maybe the opposite of that, what would it take to silence you from speaking about Jesus? Anyone want to weigh in on that? Claire? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) your death, yeah. Anyone have testimony of what they have seen and heard in their own life about Jesus that is just irrefutable? Our own salvation, yeah. Particularly if you were saved a little bit later in life, to see that change that has happened before and after, that is unexplainable apart from a supernatural work of Jesus Christ. And if someone told you, eh, that didn't really happen, you're making this up, you would say, come on, you cannot silence me about this. Uh, I just, I, I hope that we can get to a place in our own faith where we model this example of Peter here and we just can't shut up about it. Where we're just always talking about Jesus and what he has done for us. And, and when people are like, stop talking about this, we're like, there's salvation in no other name but in him. This is the only thing I want to talk about. I hope that is true of us someday. <sighs> Moving quickly. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested, again, uh, for preaching. Excuse me, I I must have misspoke a little bit. Uh, No, 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 no. Verse 17 says that the Sadducees are again present. They're filled with jealousy, and they arrest the apostles and put them into public prison. How, How effective is that strategy? Not very. How soon are they back in the temple preaching? The next morning. Yeah, and the guards and everyone comes and they look into the cell and they're gone and they're like, okay, and then they receive word that, remember those guys you locked up? They're back where they were yesterday. I mean, how many of us would have said, sweet, I got out of prison, I'm fleeing the country. Like, lucky me, I'm gone. No, these guys are easy to find. They're right where they were the other day. Preaching about Jesus. You cannot silence this message. These people are so bold. 
And the religious leaders are a little unsure about what to do here, and Gamaliel offers some advice. How would you summarize what it is that Gamaliel says? How should we respond to this blooming movement of Jesus followers? What does he say here? Anyone want to attempt to summarize it, John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, listen, we've seen movements like this exist in the past, and when their leader dies, they fizzle out. He mentions two prior movements that had gained somewhat of traction and were maybe a little concerning, but the leader died, and those people were scattered. And he says, maybe the same thing will happen here. The leader's dead. Maybe these guys will scatter. But like John said, we do want to be careful because if this movement is really something that God is behind, do we really want to be caught opposing Christianity? Second question, given that Christianity did not fizzle out because its leader died, but exists to this day, what would we conclude about its origin? It is from God. Yes. Uh, how do the disciples, a little bit later, uh, again, they are intimidated, they are actually beaten in this instance. H how do they respond to this beating for preaching the name of Christ? Yes, yeah, you? Yeah, they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for the name. How awesome is that? Peter talks about how we're going to be uh, experiencing suffering ourselves for being Christ followers, and these people aren't beaten and go, oh, that was miserable. I'm done preaching. No, they say, lucky us that like Jesus, we got to share in his sufferings. Yeah, pretty awesome. So a beating doesn't stop them. Uh, from speaking about Jesus, and I hope that, you know, even as we've been going through Romans, and we talked about not being ashamed of the gospel, that even, like, shame wouldn't stop us from speaking about Jesus. The world certainly does their best to try and silence us. We know what we've seen and heard. Let's talk about it. Let's pray. Lord, we're excited about the book of Acts here. We've seen the boldness of these disciples just in full color for us. Um, we marvel that they would be so brave as to speak just pointedly to your murderers and say, you killed Jesus. Would you give us a similar boldness as we interact with our neighbors and friends and family? Would you help us to uh, just have Jesus' name just bursting from our mouths to be on the tips of our tongues, to talk about him and, and tell people this is not just a story. This isn't just something we've come up with. This is the truth. It has changed us. Please, Lord, increase our faith and make us bold in proclaiming uh, Jesus to lost people. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.